0: If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Michelle Motzinger. She's a speech pathologist who earned her bachelor's degree in speech and hearing science from The Ohio State University and her master's degree in speech language pathology from Ohio University. She works as an acute care clinician at Riverside Methodist Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. She has found her niche and passion in helping patients and their caregivers define and meet their goals of care regarding dysphagia management. She has conducted research on this topic and is in the process of publishing her work. She gave an oral seminar at ASHA this past November on the topics we will discuss with her today. Michelle serves as a clinical instructor for graduate clinicians, a clinical consultant for her hospital systems palliative care teams, sits on her systems ethics advisory board, and is a public speaker giving guest lectures on these topics at universities and local and national speech associations. welcome to the swallow your pride podcast i'm your host Teresa richard i'm a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the medislp collective and medislp education this podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical slps everywhere while also recognizing that medical slps everywhere are doing the best with what they've got whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut My goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together, we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas, because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely.
1: Good afternoon, Michelle. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So my name's Michelle Motzinger. I'm a speech pathologist, born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, and I now work in Columbus for a large hospital system. I work in acute care for a 1000 plus bed hospital. Um, I've been practicing for about five years. My interests are geriatrics, palliative care, which we'll talk about today. Um, I'm also part of our system rehab oncology team, including um, blood and marrow transplant team and I'm the head of patient education for speech pathology for Ohio Health. So I get to write and edit patient education handouts, which I really enjoy. Yeah. So I'm just happy to be here and talk more about palliative dysphagia management today. Awesome.
0: I love it. All right. So let's dive in. Where do you want to start?
1: Yeah. So we can start by kind of talking about what got me into this topic and why I'm passionate about it. So when I started practicing about five years ago, I saw this pattern of patients would be recommended either modified diets or non-oral nutrition and hydration feeding tubes, and they wouldn't agree with those recommendations. Or maybe they would agree with those recommendations, but then they would have these adverse effects, whether those were physical or psychological and then the, the medical team, the patient, their families, it felt like no one knew what to do. And at that point in time, I was working per diem for five or six different hospitals. And each hospital kind of had their own way of dealing with the situations. You know, unfortunately, sometimes it would be a sorry, this is what, this is what they have to do. This is what was recommended. You know, there would be no discussion. Sometimes there would be a bit of discussion, but it just felt like everywhere I worked, it was a problem. And nowhere I worked, was there a clear solution for what to do in those situations.
0: Awesome. All right. So yeah, so what, what did you do?
1: Yeah. So I developed the dysphagia pathways program, which we can get into a lot more. Um, but basically I aim to answer a couple of questions and I had the opportunity to speak about this at Asha in November. And they said, you know, there's really two questions for clinicians. One is what do we do when patients do not wish to follow recommendations? And then two, what do we do when these recommendations are inadvertently causing harm to patients? So what I did is I came up with a decision tree or a flow sheet that guides clinicians and physicians through what to do in these situations because I felt like, you know, there's all this amazing literature and research out there on these topics if you look it up, um, but there seemed to be a lack of instructions, for clinicians of what do we actually do step by step? You know, can I put this on a piece of paper and hand it to a clinician or hand it to a physician? And of course, there's training that goes along with that too. But that, you know, any clinician or physician could read through this flowchart and kind of understand how to navigate those types of complex clinical situations. Cool.
0: Yeah. So tell me a little bit about putting the program together. Was it you know, just you or did you know you get permission from, you know, your rehab manager? Or were there, you know, physicians involved? Yeah. We'd love to yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so I initially met with our rehab manager and she was super supportive of the initiative of the program, which was really important because there certainly are facilities out there who still view um, you know, patient informed consent and these patient health care rights, they have a more um, you know, paternalistic approach. So I had the support of my rehab manager, which was super important. And then what I did is I got I got a couple SLPs who were interested, including my manager, our program coordinator, and then I met with a couple palliative care physicians. And actually, it was funny because I had written this note about a patient at work, and I had outlined you know these risks that the patient had from being on a modified diet, what an alternative option would look like, and the palliative care physician. Consulted on that patient actually messaged me like in our EMR system and said, Hey, this was a really good note. So I was like, Okay, that's my invitation to now bother you about (laughs) all of this stuff. Um, So I reached out to him and he reached out to his palliative care team and found a couple other physicians who were excited about the topic. And then we also are blessed to have a clinical ethics team out of our hospital. So we got them involved as well. And we all kind of sat down together and said, here are the problems we're seeing. Here's a solution that I'm providing and just kind of work through that together. I also spoke with some SLPs at Vanderbilt, Cleveland Clinic and Kansas, Kansas Medical Center, I believe, because I had posted on Ashesig SIG 13 to kind of ask around and say, does anyone have guidelines for these situations? And, Those were facilities that did have some type of guideline or at least some type of competency. So I met with those SLPs as well, you know, over Zoom, over Skype, to get their ideas, and then through that collaboration of everyone's ideas, we came up with the decision tree. Cool. So yeah, when when we have these patients in these situations where they might be having, you know, adverse effects from their dysphagia recommendations, like um, not eating or drinking, poor oral intake, dehydration, malnutrition, you know, those patients who won't drink, don't want to drink thickened liquids, they're pulling their feeding tube out, you know, we kind of say, okay, there's two different ways that you might choose to manage your dysphagia. And how we decided to coin this was the dysphagia pathways. We said there's two different plans of care, or there's two different pathways that you might choose. And sometimes that's terminology I use with patients. Sometimes it's not, I might just say there's two choices but for our providers we use those terms of pathways and so we coin them common dysphagia management and palliative dysphagia management so common dysphagia management we're looking at the more conventional dysphagia management where your primary goals are to eliminate aspiration to mitigate medical outcomes that would be adverse and you're looking to maintain nutrition and hydration so you know this is going to involve more often aggressive interventions like feeding tubes, like modified diets, and be more rehab focused. Um, Typically, these patients who are opting for common dysphagia management are going to have a better prognosis for improving their dysphagia. Um, And then we say there's this other option and it's called palliative dysphagia management. And this would be the alternative intervention or sometimes a secondary recommendation that a clinician might give a patient. And this is just going to be a lot more comfort focused. A patient might still choose to do some swallowing therapy and participate in rehab, but often their primary goal, if they're choosing this type of management, is to maintain quality of life.
0: Can you talk about maybe some different scenarios that each might follow each pathway, maybe some different patient populations or conditions or things like that?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I actually had a really good example Saturday at work. So I had a Patient in her late 90s, dementia. She was on an O2 mask, audibly wheezing, um, and we received a consult for a bedside swallow evaluation. So I go in there, and you know, just looking at her, I can tell you—you you, you probably are going to have dysphagia, right? Just like body habitus, malnourished, a poor breath-swallow pattern. Um, so I gave her a few PO trials. You know, she immediately started wheezing. Her SpO2 was dropping. Um, and at that point, you know, she had dementia. She was very hard of hearing. I I did kind of try to open up a conversation with her about what she might want if she was not able to swallow safely, but she really wasn't able to participate in that conversation. So I called the hospitalist who had written the consult. And I said, very honestly, you know, what is, what is the goal with this consult? Because, you know, I do appreciate the fact that this lady is 98 years old, has dementia, you know, what question can I answer for you? And that hospitalist was very open and said, you know, we really just want to know if you think aspiration is adding to her clinical status, if you think that might be part of why she has this poor respiratory status, why she has, you know, these abnormal CT chest results. And I said, you know, without doing an instrumental swallow study, my clinical opinion is probably yes. Um, but do we really want to put this lady through an instrumental swallow study? Because it really depends on what our goal is here. So th- I was able to call her family members and outline and, you know, have this honest conversation with them. And unfortunately, they were out of state, so they couldn't come see their mom. But I said, you know, with some patients in this situation, we would often recommend they don't eat or drink by mouth until we can do an instrumental swallow study see if they're aspirating, see how her swallowing is functioning and, you know, see if it's safe for her to swallow. But in other situations, we might want to take a more comfort focused approach and say, you know, it's okay to keep feeding her and giving her, you know, small amounts of food and drink as she wants them. But we just have to know there are some risks associated with that because we do think she is probably aspirating as very honest and said, if we do an instrumental swallow study, we might be opening up a can of worms, you know, and I, and I will say that with some caregivers. And I think that's something that like speech pathologists can be afraid to say and afraid to kind of uncover that. But we all know that in some of these patient situations, you, sometimes you don't even, you're scared to do the instrumental because you know, this probably isn't going to go well and might not affect the outcome for this patient. So, you know, I was able to be very honest and tell her that, and she was able to receive that. And thankfully, this patient did have a living will. Um, So, the family was able to go look at that and see that some of her wishes, you know, would not align with feeding tubes. It was pretty straightforward then for them to be able to make that decision for her. And then, you know, then we just talked about careful hand feeding, pureeing her foods, and go to oral care and how we could mitigate those risks of dysphagia but knowing that the family was accepting that her respiratory status and her pulmonary status might continue to decline.
0: Yeah. Ah, I, I love those conversations. I r- I really, truly do. I, I just, I think, I wish we had had, I wish we sort of harped more on that in in graduate school, at least. I, I don't know if they are now. And and I truly hope that that we are. I just think it takes the pressure off of SLPs. I I think for a long time, we thought we had to make all of these decisions, but we don't. It's such a team approach. And we're really just sort of, you know, the consultant in these roles and just guiding and navigating the conversation and honoring the patient's wishes. So this is this is really great, Michelle. I, I love this.
1: So, like you said, not necessarily having that training in graduate school of how to actually have those conversations. That's something that I've really learned how to do from my palliative care team at my hospital. I was lucky that when I set out on this project. My manager let me shadow a couple of palliative care physicians for a day or two. Um, so I spent a good amount of time with them and observing how they approach these conversations, what language they use, because that was a big problem. I was encountering two of, even when we had clinicians who were well-trained in providing options, and in our MBS reports, we would say, you know, option one NPO, alternative nutrition, rehab, option two, palliative dysphagia management, comfort diet, even if we were putting those options in our report, the medical team was not necessarily communicating those options in a way that they were really options. And how I would explain that is, you know, I might have this nuanced conversation with the physician and say, option one, option two, risks and benefits. And the physician would say, okay, got it. And then I would overhear them at the bedside and they, and, you know, this also just comes down to training. And of course, this isn't true for all physicians by any means, but sometimes I would hear that conversation at the bedside and it would sound a lot more like, okay, so speech said that you need to be NPO and you probably need a peg. You can eat and drink if you want, but you might aspirate and die. Truly, that was the conversation I was overhearing. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh no, that's not at all the conversation we had on the phone. Yeah. So I started to realize that's that's the beauty of the palliative team, right? Is they have this training and how to have these conversations. But really from talking to our palliative providers too, they told us we don't know the nuances of dysphagia. Like we we can talk about NPO and PEG versus comfort diet you know, they told me we really can't get into these risks and these really nuanced pieces of dysphagia because they're also not dysphagia experts. So I, I really realized that speech pathologists should be the primary clinicians having these conversations. So I did a lot of training with my team through what I learned from our palliative care team. And okay, how do we talk to patients and families? Because the way that we communicate them has a huge outcome on what they choose and really presenting it as a choice to them. So a lot of what we do, you know, we have like a seven-step goals of care discussion guide that I've trained my team on that we use um, and that I presented at Asha as well. So, you know, we we prepare for the conversation, we meet with the family, the caregivers, if they're available, or just the patient, and we introduce the purpose of the discussion. And we might say, you know, we're meeting today to talk about Mr. Smith swallowing. What do you already know? About Mister Smith swallowing, and we start there, and we figure out because you know things are communicated through nursing, through the hospitalists. So we figure out what do they already know. You know what's their impression, and if we're sitting down and having this serious conversation, you know we we might warn them too, and we might tell them, "I'm really sorry, I have to tell you this news." Um, or you know, I walk into a room and I might say, "This isn't this isn't probably what you're going to." want to hear but it's an important conversation for us to have and i've had patients and you know they're they're sick and they're tired and i've had patients tell me no come back later like but that's good because if they're not in a mental state to have that conversation then we should have it at a different time so sometimes we schedule these in advance sometimes we don't just depends on the patient in the family but you know we sit down and we introduce the purpose of the discussion find out what they already know, and then we teach them. Then we deliver the information on the dysphagia diagnosis, what our swallow studies showed, and what our prognosis is. And that can be difficult to determine, but that's an important part of these conversations too, because it's totally different. A young person with an acute stroke where you're recommending maybe NPO, but you think they could progress in the next couple of weeks and Alternative nutrition is just a short-term intervention versus someone with a chronic dysphagia or advanced age where you're saying, no, this is more of a long-term prognosis, a long-term conversation. Um, So we we pay attention to that. And then, like I said, there's some different wording we might use. Something I learned from our palliative care team is a hope-worry statement. So I hope your swallowing will improve. I worry it won't. So we're affirming, you know, my goal is the same as your goal, but I'm, you know, I'm worried the prognosis might not be good. And that's, that's a gentle way to tell someone that another phrase we might use is I'm afraid these results were not what you were hoping for. You know, I'm afraid what I have to tell you is not what you want to hear. And, you know, it's important when we deliver that information about the dysphagia, we're using patient friendly terms, we're avoiding medical jargon. And that also has to do with the patient and the family's education level in health literacy and backgrounds. We want to tailor it to that, um, you know, not oversimplifying it, but not overcomplicating it. And then after we deliver all that information, we expect and respond to the patient and caregiver's emotional response. And something that will always stick with me that a palliative care doctor I work with told me is if a patient cries, you've done your job. And that is because if we're telling a patient that they need to be NPO, or not that they need to be NPO, but if we're telling a patient one of our recommendations is for them to be NPO, and that like really hits home with them, they might cry. And I think, you know, what he meant was, then you've communicated that information, not that we ever want to like make someone cry. But when we're talking about a really serious diagnosis, and you know being npo is very serious we want to make sure that that information has really been received so at that point in the conversation you know we're expecting and responding to those emotions we might just allow some therapeutic silence we might provide some compassionate statements like i wish i had different news for you i can tell that you weren't expecting to hear this i'm really sorry i had to tell you this and at that point We might take a break and come back. You know, some patients and families will tell you, like, we just need to let this sit. Think about our options. You know, others can move on more quickly. A lot of times I find if it's an acute dysphagia, people need time to think. If it's a more chronic and they've kind of been around for a while and they've been in the healthcare system and, you know, they're kind of used to these conversations more or less, then they might be able to move on. And that's when we're going to just kind of assess the risks and benefits of each dysphagia pathway. And we're going to talk about, you know, here are some risks and benefits of pathway one, here are some risks and benefits of pathway two, and then really try to interview them to understand what goal, you know, they want to meet and what their priorities are.
0: All right. Let's talk about the medical ethics of all of this. I'm really intrigued.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that was something that, um, I had to learn a lot about when I started this program because I had to understand, yeah, as clinicians, what is their due diligence? You know, what is our duty to our patients? So I started the American Medical Association Code of Ethics because that applies to all medical providers, not just physicians. And there's quite a few different parts of that that applies to us, you know, in this realm of dysphagia management. So there's there's four principles that I'll go over. The first is beneficence. All clinicians must provide beneficence. So this is the ability to act in the patient's best interest. There's also non-maleficence, so the principle of doing no harm. And there's justice, which means providing fair allocation of resources, also includes the right to withhold non-beneficial treatment. So that medical principle is very interesting because it's also saying, for example, that you would not have to recommend a PEG to a patient with advanced dementia. That if you knew that an intervention did not hold any benefit, that it would not have to be offered. And then the point that I really want to talk about is autonomy. So that's the principle of respecting patient self-determination. So what this says is that a patient with medical decision-making capacity has the right to accept or to refuse any recommended medical intervention. And there's a lot of research that supports, um, like Puntel Sheltman have written a paper about this that says a patient has the right to refuse any medical intervention, including medically supplied nutrition, hydration, and thickened liquids. So, you know, those are considered medical interventions that patients have the right to accept or to refuse. So even just knowing that that is something that we have to abide by, really shows you how much we should be having these conversations and considering these rights that our patients have. That opinion of the Medical Association, it's opinion 1.1.3. It also outlines that clinicians have or that patients have to have the opportunity to discuss with their clinicians benefits of any recommended intervention, risks of any recommended intervention, and cost which is something very interesting that talked about quite a bit with our clinical ethics team of, you know, cost of thickened liquids, cost of tube feeding. I feel like that's something that we don't even really consider as the clinician, but huge consideration for patients and for patients' families. Yeah. So, you know, just considering all these things, we have to think about, you know, this is the patient's decision and it says it right there. But unfortunately, I feel like in our training, at least even in grad school five years ago, I don't remember talking about that too much. It was more, you know, make the best recommendation for your patient. If they don't want to follow it, you know, maybe you'll sign off, you'll defer care to another provider, but that almost feels like sometimes abandoning care, right? Just because a patient's goals don't agree with ours, we're going going to sign off, you know, that, that, Thinking never really made sense to me, especially, you know, being in the dysphagia experts. If if a patient doesn't want to follow a certain plan of care, like, let me help you find the next best thing and figure out how to do what you want to do safely. Another big piece of it is decision making capacity. So we can talk about that a little bit, too. Yeah,
0: I I love this. I I think that's such an interesting point about the cost and things, because we we don't talk about that. And I think a lot of times people think it's not our role to be talking about that. But I very much think it is because it's a huge, it's something that's majorly overlooked. If it's not something that a family can afford, or if they Have access to resources; otherwise, they might need to start that process to get those funds. Or I I think it's much more of a process than we give it credit for. And and I'm glad you brought it up, and I'm I'm glad it is written in these medical ethics guidelines because I think it is important.
1: Mm -hmm. Definitely. And how many times do you know I see a patient who comes from home, and you know they were previously recommended thickened liquids, and a lot of times the reason why they're not on them is cost. Mm -hmm. Yep. Or understanding of how to prepare them, you know, how to mix them. So decision-making capacity in Ohio, it's legally determined by the attending physician. I'm not sure how all other states determine that. I know that in Ohio, like speech pathologists do not determine decision-making capacity. We can help in that process. A physician might ask us, you know, to do a cognitive eval, kind of give our thoughts on the patient's overall cognition. Mm -hmm. but then the physician has to make that decision. And then if they're deemed to not possess decision-making capacity, that's where this process gets even more complicated because not only does the patient not know what to do, not know what choice to make, but we also now can't rely on them to make that choice. We can, of course, ask them what they want because we want to honor their goals. But if they don't have that decision-making capacity appointed, then we have to find a surrogate. Decision maker. That's a whole nother process that has specific guidelines in the state of Ohio that are probably pretty similar throughout the United States. But when we look at a surrogate decision maker, it has to be someone, the decision should be made considering one, what would that patient have chosen for themselves, and two, what is in the patient's best interest. So you want the surrogate decision maker to be someone who's going to think about. Those things. A lot of times it's a spouse or an adult child, but there can even be conflict if a patient is expressing a goal and a surrogate expresses another goal. And that's something in our hospital where, you know, I'm thankful we have a clinical ethics team where we can consult. Because, like I said, you know, ethically that decision really should be made considering what that patient would have chosen for themselves, which is why, with that example of the elderly lady, the elderly patient I saw. I was so glad she had a living will because that, that made it so much easier. Her daughter said, Oh, we read her will. Like we know what she would have wanted. Um, So they didn't have to extrapolate that.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But it, it definitely opens up, you know, a lot of ethical issues because in these situations in general, clinicians feel this moral burden, You know, they feel conflicted. A lot of times clinicians feel responsible if a patient has an adverse medical outcome. You know, if a patient would choose to continue to eat and drink despite a severe dysphagia, and then, you know, they develop a pneumonia or they have an acute respiratory event, a lot of times that clinician will feel a moral burden, even if it's undue. Um, And I think that's where you were saying, like, we really just are the consultant and we shouldn't necessarily feel that pressure as long as that patient or their caregiver made that informed decision. But a lot of times, you know, the reality is clinicians do feel that burden. And then, you know, there's a big moral burden on families, too, who are making those decisions for the patients. Because, again, they might feel responsible if there's a complication. Sometimes they feel like, you know, families have expressed to me they feel forced to follow a plan of care that they did not agree with or that they maybe were given options, but they didn't have enough time. And that's a really interesting theory in acute care. It's called the cascade of care. Things are happening so quickly, especially to critically ill patients, that a lot of times, you know, a patient wakes up with a trach and a peg and then tells the family, oh, I wouldn't have actually wanted this. Um, and they they call that that cascade of care if things are happening so quickly, you know, even if options are given, like I said, sometimes they're given so, so quickly of PEG, NPO, eat, aspirate. Okay. That was maybe a four minute conversation. And now we're down a road that that patient might have never wished to be down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, these are great, Michelle. Thank you so much. Yeah. So so tell me a little bit about how this looks. How, How does this dynamic work in your hospital? Is it a team that you have or is it like, you know, once a week you round
1: on these patients or what
0: does it look like? Yeah, what's it look like?
1: Yeah, yeah, great question. So all patients are considered candidates for this program. So in the decision tree, one of the first steps is identifying factors that indicate the need for this program. So I'll go through some of those. So the first one is, is there a concern a patient has experienced reduced quality of life or psychosocial distress due to recommendations? So for example, there's patients who are NPO but are telling everyone they're thirsty, they're yelling for water. I had a patient, actually not my patient, but I heard of a patient once who drank urine out of their um yeah. Yeah, their urinal. And so obviously those are extreme examples, but even those patients who just, you know, when you come see them, they tell you, I don't want to drink these anymore. I used to see a pattern of, you know, patients would communicate. I don't want to drink these thickened liquids and physicians and clinicians, nurses, you know, everyone would document it, but nothing would happen. They would just document the patient was unhappy. So that's kind of the first indication of the patient has a reduced quality of life or they're in psychosocial distress. The next indication is a patient who is experiencing poor oral intake. So malnutrition, dehydration, due to dysphagia recommendations. The next indication, probably the most important one, is when asked, has the patient expressed they would not want to be on a modified diet or be nothing by mouth or receive non-oral nutrition and hydration? So have you asked the patient (laughs) what they would want? And for certain patients, especially those who possess capacity, you know, even before I order an instrumental swallow study, I might tell them if I have a feeling that this conversation is going to come up, I might tell them this doesn't go well. If, if we judge that your swallowing's pretty severely impaired, would you be open to a feeding tube? You know, would you be open to a modified diet? Because if they can tell me right away not. We might still do the study to have the information, but I'm going to document in that initial note that these are their their wishes, and I'm going to bold it and underline it (laughs) so everyone knows this is what they express. Another one is really any patient recommended to be NPO suspected to have a poor prognosis for improvement. And then any patient, of course, at or near end of life or any patient receiving palliative or hospice care. So those are kind of what I call our red flags. So everyone on my team uses this program and everyone on my team has been trained in this program. Um, So these patients are everywhere in our hospital and everyone kind of knows, you know, look out for those red flags. And if you see those red flags, then we're going to go to the decision tree and we're going to have this conversation with these patients. We do have like roundtables where we discuss more complex cases. And I'm also lucky that we have about 25 speech pathologists on staff. And on a given day, there's anywhere from 10 to 15 of us at the hospital. So we have these conversations on a daily basis To I tend to keep track of them just because I'm hoping to do some research on outcomes in these patients, like with their length of stay, with fatality rates, um, with, you know, quality of life, customer satisfaction, you know, there's a lot of different things I hope to look at with these patients who have used this program. But yeah, it's really looking for those red flags and then saying, okay, you're a patient who's going to benefit from this program. So we're going to initiate this conversation with you and with the medical team as well.
0: Cool. Awesome. What about yeah i guess what about
1: are there any any downsides to this program any challenges that you've found yeah so you know one challenge from the beginning was the physician buy-in and how i sold this to them and this is the absolute truth is this is going to make your life easier <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> because when i sit down and i have this conversation with the patient and family we document their wishes we initiate you know, either the common dysphagia management or the palliative dysphagia management based upon their goals. And then I call the doctor and I say, Hey, we talked about all this. We documented all of this. This is what they wish to do. We've kind of taken care of something that could have been become a very prolonged, you know, complex clinical situation. And we've really solved it. And of course, you know, goals might change and patient condition might change, but we've taken something that have been very complicated for that primary physician and we've simplified it and documented it but i certainly think you know when we started this program i would say you know when i would call a physician and tell them you know like i gave the example with that physician and that elderly patient when i call them and i tell them hey, I have these concerns, these red flags about this patient and their dysphagia plan of care. I'd like to have this, like, I'd like to sit down and have this conversation about these two different options with this patient and their family. Um, I would say when we started the program, it was about 75-25. 75% of our providers would say, yep, sounds good. Go for it. 25% would, you know, have some questions, have some concerns. Um, And one of the things that always comes up everywhere (laughs) is code status because there is, there's just a old school belief that a patient would have to be a DNR to be on a palliative diet or a comfort diet or, you know, whatever you might call that at your facility. And that's just not true. And that's something that I've sat down with our ethics team and our palliative team and said, Hey, people keep saying this, is this true? Like, does this stand up? With this stand up in court? And resoundingly, the answer is no, because if you go back to that opinion 1.1.3 and the American Medical Association Code of Ethics, it says that all patients with decision-making capacity have the right to accept or refuse all interventions. And resuscitation is an intervention. So you can accept the intervention of resuscitation and say, yes, I'm a full code, I accept that intervention, but I decline the intervention of a thickened, you know, of a thickened liquid or of a feeding tube. And even if that might feel, you know, uncomfortable to a clinician, that is still that patient's right. And our palliative doctors, you know, gave me examples of these patients who, you know, might decline a heart cath and they keep smoking. Well, that might not make sense to you, but that is, you know, that patient's right to do that. And a lot of times with these dysphagia patients, you know, it might might not necessarily even ever get to the point where they're being coded, right? More likely, they're going to be chronically aspirating and they're going to get pneumonia, maybe pulmonary fibrosis over the course of their lifetime. Um, But most studies show that patients who aspirate, they die from comorbidities, not actually from their dysphagia. So even if it got to that point, you know, that's a very other nuanced conversation so that's some education that we've had to do with our physicians too. And that probably is the biggest pushback that people will get when having these conversations with physicians is the, um, well, they're a full code. So they have to follow that more conservative conventional recommendation. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Michelle. This is so informative.
1: I think what I love so much about this is I think these are sort
0: of concepts that a lot of people know and a lot of people talk about, but you've actually put it into a flow sheet or a program and yeah. I think it'd be so helpful. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, I know where this flow sheet is, but can you talk a little bit about, you know, if people are wanting to email in and see where it is, if you can share what's going on with it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, I presented it, the flow sheet, the decision tree um at Asha, but unfortunately I'm not able to give people copies of it at this time. I submitted it to publication. So we're just still trying to figure out the publication of it. And until then um, yep. not able to share it, but once it is published, I will, you know, be more than happy to share it with everyone. And that's really my hope. And, you know, it's one piece of paper front and back. And like I said, it really is my hope that you could hand it to any medical provider and they could read it briefly and get an idea of um, how the program works and how they could use it themselves. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. Any any final thoughts for the people? Anything else? Yeah. I think to end, I would just say the patient is really the center of all we do. And this is about the patient. And, you know, my hope for this program is that, you know, patients are satisfied because their goals are being met. And there's so much cultural and spiritual and personal decisions around food and drink. Um, and that's really something that it's important for us as clinicians to understand and to respect. And so, Really, it's just that the patient is the heart of all of this. And if we can help them meet their goals in the most safe and functional way possible, that's really the most satisfying part of my job. Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, I love that! I love every bit of this. So,
1: thank you so much, Michelle.
0: This was wonderful. I know I had so many, I had so many colleagues attend your talk at Ashen. Right, after, they all like came running up to me, and they're like, "You had to get this girl on the podcast. This was amazing!" And so, so thank you so much for for coming on. And I didn't realize at the time you had submitted it for publication. So, once it is approved, I'll, I'll let everyone know. We'll get it added to the show notes as soon as it is it published and we're able to share. But in the meantime, I just wanted wanted you to come on because I know this, you know other clinicians i'm sure will want to develop programs just like this. And, um i just love all the the research you did and just really the interdisciplinary approach that you put together the real patient centered family centered approach. so thank you. i think this is really this is what our jobs are all about and yeah so thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And that's a wrap for this
0: episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit SwallowYourPridePodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening
1: and we'll catch you next week.